Well, Ezekiel 33:11 says, "Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, and turn back from your evil ways, for why you will die." 2 Peter 3:89 says, "For we know that you, Lord, are not slow to fulfill your promises, as some count slowness, but you are patient toward us, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do we believe still in a hell today? I contend to you and present to you for your consideration that I believe hell is, is more than likely that topic that is the least discussed and preached about and studied about in the church today. And many have given up on the reality that there is such a place that the Bible clearly describes as hell. But hell is a real place where real people will go who do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And it's for that reason that God sent Jesus in the first place. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to redeem lost souls with the gospel message and the work that he did on the cross so that those who place their faith and trust in him would be saved from their sin against God and not suffer the wrath that is rightfully deserving of those who have sinned against God, violated his law, and thus then destined to spend eternity after this life in a place the Bible calls hell. Hell is a real place where real people go without Christ. But I'm convinced that we as the church have gotten away from not only just the reality of hell, but we have gotten away from the life-saving mission that God called us on through Christ when he came to redeem a lost world unto himself. For Christ not only came to redeem lost sinners, but he came then to recruit those of us who would place our faith and trust in him as not just Savior, but also the Lord of our lives, in that we would follow his example and we, like him, would be on a rescue mission. We are here, after faith in Christ, on a rescue mission. You see, I think some of us get it all mixed up. We think that salvation is all about us, and it is until we get saved. And then once we become saved, then salvation becomes all about others. It comes about, comes a, a, about us not only becoming Christ followers, but then investing the lives that we have in building others who would profess faith and trust in Jesus so that they, like us, would become fully devoted Christ followers. We, like Christ, are on a mission. And that mission is to redeem lost and to recruit disciples, to build up others in their faith so that they, like us, will follow Christ. That is the call, I'm convinced, of authentic discipleship. It is a call to believe and to become, but also then to invest our lives into building others up in the faith. In other words, we are on a life-saving mission, and most of us, most of us, if not 90 plus percent of us, honestly, will go to our graves and stand before Christ without having led any, anyone, not a single person, to faith in Jesus. Not a single one of us have, 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 or can escape as disciples this call to not only become, but to invest our lives 
in others who desperately need Christ and to build them up in their faith so that they, like us, will become Christ followers. That's the call that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. So I, I am going to invite you to take your Bible and we're going to turn there and we're going to see the call to authentic discipleship as described by Jesus. Discipleship is simply, first of all, and primarily this. It means to follow the example or to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That's what it what it means to be a disciple, to make him the Lord, the leader of our lives. That's discipleships. That is the call. It's not just the call to be saved, but it's a call to lordship where we follow the leadership and the lordship of Jesus over and in and through every aspect of our lives. The call to authentic discipleship is following Jesus. How did Jesus call his first disciples? And is that call then the same call today? And I contend to you, it is. But the call of Christ then is still the call of Christ today. It has not changed. And so the call of authentic discipleship is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Let's look at it together. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. They were fishermen. Notice the crusade that Christ himself is on. He's on a crusade. He's on a campaign to redeem a lost world, and to recruit disciples who will eventually take up the mission and the cause that he has when he leaves this earth. He is seeking to call disciples to follow in his footsteps because he knows that soon he will leave. And in leaving, he's going to leave them with the mission and the message of the gospel that he is to leave for them when he dies on the cross. So the crusade that he's on is basically this, while walking by the sea. Notice the intentionality of Christ. Christ is incredibly intentional here. He is walking by the sea. He's not just haphazardly walking by the sea, sort of to put his feet into the sand, looking for sand dollars, or seeking out some sort of a little trinket or something that he might find that he might put in his pocket. There's an intentionality about Christ as to the reason why he is on this shore, walking on this journey at this particular moment. Why is he there? He is intentionally seeking disciples that he would call not only to faith, but to follow him. There's an intentionality about Christ. Remember last week we talked about in Matthew chapter 28, he said, Go into all the world, and that word go is as you go. Christ is going, and as he is going, he is going with an intentionality of seeking out people around him that he might call unto discipleship. So this intentionality leaves him with this incredible, insightful approach. Notice in the text, he saw two brothers. He had the insight to see two brothers as he's walking by the sea, intentionally seeking out disciples whom he who will call. He sees these two disciples who were there mending their nets and fishing by the shore. He sees them. He doesn't look the other way. He doesn't pretend not like he hasn't seen them. He, he, he intentionally looks their way, and he sees the potential in these two disciples, a potential for them not only to put their faith and trust in him, but a, a potential to follow him. He sees them. He's insightful enough to look at them and to see their need and to know that these two men whom he must call will eventually become his disciples. He saw them. You know, when you think about your own salvation experience, Christ intentionally sought you out. He intentionally sought you out. And he saw you where you were. He saw you in your lostness. 
He saw you in your need to trust in him and to commit your life to follow him. He saw these men. But these two brothers, notice named Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother. He was not only insightful and intentional, but he was inclusive. He saw these two who were there casting their net by the sea. Why? They were fishermen. And this, this whole inclusivity of Jesus is, 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 is an example for us, I think, to understand that, that there are people around us as we go about our day-to-day lives whom Christ wants to invite to participate and to believe and to become a part of being one of his disciples. He is inclusive. He's wanting to include them and include many, many others. And his message and his ministry and his mission is one of inclusivity. And he hopes to seek out those who will receive his message and respond to his message and put their faith and trust in him. And Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, was incredibly inclusive to all of those who would hear, respond, and receive him as their savior. And he definitely wanted to include these two guys, not only just to faith in him, but to follow him in the inner circle of being a part or two of the 12 that would be the inner disciples. But notice also his impartiality. Because it's interesting that Matthew records for us that they were casting a net into the sea or they were fishermen. I don't know if you know anything about the social ladder of their day and time and and the political influence of certain professions and things of, of, of of, you know, of people and how the, the culture was back then. But fishermen were not very high on the socioeconomic level of political and financial influence. These were uh, blue-collar guys who worked really, really hard to not only fish, but to support themselves and their family. And they were not invited more than likely to sit at some of the pristine places and, and, and sit in some of the, the, the higher up places in the political influence of their day. They, they were not on any platform. They were not on, on anyone's, uh, you know, let, let's, let's connect with them because they've got connections and they can help me politically. They were, they were sort of obsolete. They were, they were blue-collar grunt guys who had hard lives, who spent incredible amount of of effort to have small yield and return on what they did. And, and I think, as I've alluded to earlier, most people just sort of overlooked them because they were just were fishermen. No big deal. But Jesus sees them as much more than that. And it's interesting that the majority of the disciples that he chose were men of little, if any, influence in their culture during, their, during his day and time. And yet he, he sees them. And as he sees them and he, and, and, and he has this impartiality about whom he's going to select and who he's going to choose to be major players and the mission and the message that he's going to leave them. But notice as he is walking by the sea, unrecorded for us is an, an interaction. I mean, I can't imagine as I took a look at this text how much is not recorded in here. You ever wondered about that? I mean, did Jesus just walk up and immediately say, come follow me? Or was there some sort of interaction prior to that? Well, take your Bible, not on the screen, but take your Bible and open it if you might, if you can see it in some of the dark places in here. In John chapter 1, verse 35, 
You see, Jesus already had an encounter with Andrew and Simon Peter. There was already a time in which he introduced himself and had already had some fellowship and interaction with them. This was not the first encounter in, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew doesn't record everything that took place initially prior to this encounter. But John helps us sort of connect some of the dots. And in John chapter 1, verse 35, we see the next day, verse 35, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by the sea, uh, by the sea, walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Notice what it says in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Interesting. We see Andrew in Matthew 4 here being called out to be a disciple. Andrew was here, and he spent time with Jesus, Simon Peter's brother. He identifies the Andrew as Simon Peter's brother. Now, verse 41, he then first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I'm convinced that before this encounter on the seashore with Andrew and Simon Peter, that Jesus already had a relationship with these two. And I'm convinced that the first conversation that he had on that seashore as he approaches them was just not, hey, come follow me. They had already had an encounter. They already knew each other fairly well, had spent some time with each other. And so there was more than likely some small talk. I can imagine, well, how's the fishing going? Are they biting today? You know, a little bit of, you know, conversation. And he approaches these two where they are with an extension of a call to come follow him. He approaches them where they are. I'm convinced that you'll never, ever lead anyone to faith in Christ where you are. We have to go where they are. And there are too many times we want them to come to us. And there are times when they do come to us, but I don't know about too many fishermen who go fish and they sit in their boat without ever casting a line and the fish just jump in the boat and say, take me, you know, fry me up and, and consume me. Do they do that? Unless you get some of those flying fish and I'm not sure, sure they're good to eat. I, I've never eaten one of those things. I did see a thing the other day, you know, where the fish were flying around. They just kind of flew into the boat. Uh, but how many of you have caught fish like that? Now, one person in the back out of all of us. Now, there are times, I think, when God sends people our way without any effort on our part to reach out to people, and they just come and say, how can I be saved? That's happened. I've been in the office, and... People just drive in and say, can I see the pastor? And they sit down in my office and say, I'm lost. I need Christ. Can you help me? <laughs> Man, that's, that's easy. It's like the Holy Spirit just kind of caught them on the, you know, and they were hooked. And he said, here, Charles, just reel them in. And you just kind of reel them in. You know, but that's not usually how fishing is, is it? 
Christ is on a campaign, he's on a crusade, and he's intentionally seeking out people who desperately need him, not just as Savior, but who need to follow him as the leader and the Lord of their lives. I wonder how intentional you are about seeking the lost around you. Well, not only is he on a crusade, but we see the call that he extends to the disciples. There's a call that he extends to the disciples. Notice the first part of verse 19. And he said to them, follow me. You know, the same call he extends to these disciples is the same call he extends to his disciples today. And he said. Jesus initiates the call. These disciples didn't step up and say, Jesus, we want to be disciples. We want to follow you. Christ intentionally sought them out, and he then initiated the call. Christ always initiates the call to the lost to turn from their sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord of their lives. He initiates the call. But notice the call is also an individual call. And he said to them. The English translation isn't really clear. It has a tendency to convey to us that he said to both of them the same thing at the same time. But the reality is the original text helps us understand that he may have spoken the same words, follow me, to both of them. But it was an individual call to each one, to not just Andrew, but also Simon Peter. It would be like us in here today, and Jesus were to stand here and he say, follow me. We're all in this crowd, and we all hear the same invitation, but it is an individual invitation to follow him. He individually sought Andrew, and he individually sought Simon Peter. And this invitation to follow is an individual invitation because, you see, we don't come to him in crowds. We come to him individually. And we must individually hear the voice of the Lord calling us and inviting us to join him. And we must individually then respond to that call individually to follow Jesus. God has no, what I'm going to call, grandchildren. People who come to faith because their mom and dad came to faith. You don't just become a Christian by osmosis. You, you may grow up in a, in a Christian home, but that is not automatically going to make you a Christ follower. You must hear personally the invitation to follow. is an individual call where you individually then respond to that call and follow Christ. But notice then the invitation. He says, follow me, follow, to follow me, to follow me as Lord, to follow, to step where I step, to go where I go, to do what I ask, to yield to my leadership, to become like me, follow. It is a call to discipleship. It is not just a call to believe and to be saved, but it's a call not just to salvation, but it's a call to make him the leader and the Lord of their lives. But notice in the invitation, there's an insistence on his part. He says, follow me. Follow me. He doesn't say follow someone else or follow something else. He says, follow me exclusively. Step where I step. Go where I go. 
follow where I lead. Listen to my voice and obey it. Follow me. Make me the Lord of your life over everything and everyone. But I'm convinced too often the way we come to Christ is simply, Lord, I want to accept you as my Savior. Now you follow me where I lead. Because you see, I'm not really interested in where you're leading. And when you think about it, most of our prayers are about where we want God to take us rather than where he wants to take us. And we often, after we come to faith in Christ, we want to sit in the driver's seat and we want to dictate and determine the direction of our lives. But he says, you follow me. I know when I was a kid, we played follow the leader a lot. I don't know if they still play it today. I have not seen my grandchildren play that game at all. That's really old school, isn't it? In this age of technology and all of the things that are available, they, they, they don't play those old games that we used to play. Do they? I, I've not seen them play that. Unless a grandparent or a parent who's you know, not of this generation you know, teaches them to play these games, but I've not seen my grandchildren just arbitrarily on their own play follow the leader. But I remember when we played it. I remember when our children played it, and I played it with my children because my wife said we had three children, but we had four in the house. Okay? I don't need to do the math for you. That means I was a child with my children. Because I, you know, it's just how I am. I like to get on the floor and I like to wrestle and I like to play and shoot marbles. And I, I'm, just, I'm just a big kid. But, but I tell you one thing I know about follow the leader you can only have one leader. You can only have one leader. It's, it was a preparation for being a pastor. The only thing that I didn't realize is when you pastor a church, there's just not one leader. There's many leaders. <laughs> but there's only one leader and follow the leader. And that leader is Jesus. And the call that he extends is for all of us who are his disciples to get in line and follow his lead. We go where he goes. Follow the leader. If they went under something, everyone else went under it. If they went over it, everyone else went over it. And the objective is to try to get them to do something that they couldn't do, right? So you could win the game. Jesus doesn't do that, though. And he invites us to follow his lead. And that's the call that he extends to those of us who place our faith and trust in him, to follow him as our leader. There's a crusade that he's on to redeem the lost and recruit disciples, to train them. But there's a call that he extends to all who would hear the call to follow. But notice in the text, there's a change that takes place when we follow him. There's a change. There's a transformation. And Jesus is saying in the second part of verse 19, not on the screen, but he says, follow me and. Don't overlook the and. Follow me and. You know, when I saw that, I almost hesitated for a moment because Jesus says, follow me, but there's more. There's an invitation to more. It's not just follow me for yourself, but there's more involved in following me because when you follow me, there's going to be a change. There's going to be a transformation. Your priorities are going to be different. Your plans are going to be different. You're going to be a different person and I'm going to tell you what, it, what, it, what, it, what it's going to cost you. I'm going to tell you what kind of commitment it is. There's a change coming if you follow me. Because when we follow Christ, there's the end there. 
follow me and, and notice he says, I. Follow me and I. I stop there for a moment. I. Who is the I? It is Jesus. It is the Son of God. It is the Savior. It is our leader, our mentor, the one I. And I looked at it and he said, and there's more. I, Jesus, I, the Son of God, I am going to revolutionize your life. I am going to change your life. You will never be the same because when we meet Jesus and we commit to him, he changes everything about our lives. And Jesus saying, I am the power, I am the source that you will turn to, rely upon for this transformation. I am going to change you. I am. And Jesus said, I will. Notice the will. I will change you. I will. Now, the, the I will make is one word in the original language. But all three words are there. And the will is Jesus telling these disciples, these two who are there fishing by the sea, I will. In other words, I am telling you what my will is. Follow me, and here's my will. This is what I will. This is where I'm taking you. This is what I want. I will it. And because I will it, it will happen. And I make a promise to you that if you follow me, I will do this. I will make you fishers of men. I promise to do that. And if you're a genuine, true, authentic Christ follower who is looking to Jesus as your source, as your power, as he transforms your life, he will make you into what he has just described. I will do it. Some of us have a tendency saying, well, I, I could never be a disciple who leads others to faith in Christ and disciple them. That's right. You cannot do it on your own, in and of yourself, in your own power, in and of your own strength. And if you ever try to do that in and of yourself, in your own power and strength, you will fail every time. He's already told us what his will is. His will is to make us disciples who make other disciples. And our power source is Christ. And there's more, I will make Interesting, he talks the word make. That's an interesting word here. And, and the English doesn't really quite do it justice because it, it helps us understand in the original language that he is going to provide the necessary ingredients or the necessary characteristics to make it happen. In other words, he's the provider. He's the source that will make this happen. I will make you. Who's the you? You who are my disciples, those of you who hear and respond and accept and believe, I will make you who are my disciples, what? Fishers of men. I don't know if you know the word fishers or not, but in the English language, in the original language, it simply means those who fish fish, who catch fish. They are fishers. But instead of fishers of fish, I will make you fishers of men. A disciple who isn't a fisher of men is an oxymoron. How can you claim to be a disciple and not be a fisher of men? I know people that I have pastored for years who have never led a single person down the aisle to trust Christ as their Savior. And I wonder if they are genuine disciples. 
Because Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. Isn't that what he says? And what he's calling them to do is what he's calling us to do. I will make you a fisher of men if you will follow me. And yet we've got a lot of lip service and a lot of singing and a lot of big Bibles and a lot of head knowledge and a lot of training. And yet none of us are bringing others to faith in Christ. When we commit to follow Christ, he brings a change. You cannot encounter Jesus and stay the same. And when you come to faith in Christ and you become a disciple of his, he will transform your life. And he says, follow me and I will, that's a promise, I will make you fishers of men. We must, as disciples, become fishers of men. Why? Because men and women, boys and girls, are lost and they're dying in their sin and they're going to hell unless we become fishers of men. And yet we don't care. Or at least we care, but we don't do anything with our care. I mean, that's, that's the transformation that he brings. Is that we need to care and we need to share Because in sharing, we then follow the example of Christ. That's the change. But notice the commitment that is required for this transformation to take place. What's the commitment? Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. What kind of commitment did they give? Well, they responded immediately. I don't really have to explain to you what that word means, do I? Uh, There was no delay. There was no hesitation. There was no argumentation. There was no, but what ifs, what ifs, and, you know, there was, they just immediately, when they heard Jesus say, follow me and I will make you fishermen, they immediately, instantaneously did what he asked them to do. They responded immediately. Immediately notice they left. Their response was complete. It was a complete response. They left their old life. They left their old world behind. They turned their back on it, and they turned toward Jesus. I don't know about you, but that helps me see repentance, doesn't it? I mean, the old life that they were living was a hopeless life. They, they were taught by their religious peers that you're saved. How? By works. And they were frustrated and, and, and bound and, and depressed because their own works, they, they were fishermen and they, they were sinners and there was no hope for them. But when Jesus introduced himself, all of a sudden now there's hope and they turn from that old life of, of, a, of a system of works and they turn now to a savior of grace and they turn their back on their old way of life. And they left not just their old life, but they left their nets. They left their nets. They were incredibly sacrificial in their effort of following Christ. They left it all to follow him. They didn't bring anything along. Yeah, Jesus, I'll follow you, but, but let, me, let me bring some of it with you, with me, while I follow you. Because, you know, I might need this. And they just left the whole thing there. They just dropped their nets. This is their livelihood. This is their everything. They have spent years of their lives building up this business of fish and chips. Yeah, Red, red Lobster or, or uh, what's the other one? Long John Silver's. Bonefish Grill, I don't know. They had a, they had a business. They, 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 they just 
they, they, gave, they gave it all up for him. They gave it all up for him. And, and yet we, we can't give up anything for him. We can't give up our TV watching for him. We can't give our recreational life up for him. We can't give up anything. We can't come an hour early on Sunday morning to worship on time change for him because we're just too lazy. You get a pass here because you're here today. I mean, we're so fickle, aren't we? To sacrifice, to give of what I have and who I am, to follow him, that, that, that's, that's just a little bit too much, isn't it? I'm in the receiving thing. I'm not in the giving thing. And they left their nets and, notice, they followed him. They were obedient to him. I have an interesting thing that I want to read, and uh, we'll close with this. Let me, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit lengthy, as you can see, but uh, I'll probably, I'll read it as fast as I can. The following widely told story is a sobering parable of what a church's concern for evangelism has often been like. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks were frequent and crude life, I'm sorry, let me back up. Beep, 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 beep. Okay. <laughs> let my eyes adjust to all of that for just a second. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks were frequent, a crude little life-saving station was built. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted crewmen left uh, kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for any who might need help. Many lives were saved by their devoted efforts. While a after a little while, the station became famous. Some of those who were saved, as well as others in the surrounding area, wanted to become a part of the work. They gave time and money for its support. New boats were bought, additional crews were trained, and the station grew. Some of the members became unhappy that the building was so crude. They felt a larger, nicer place would be more appropriate as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they placed the emergency cots with, replaced the emergency cots with hospital beds and put better furniture beds in the enlarged building. Soon the station became a popular gathering place for its members to discuss the work and to visit with each other. They continued to remodel and to redecorate the unit more and more until the station took on the look and the character of a country club. Fewer and fewer members were interested as time went on to go out on life-saving missions. So they hired professional crews to do the work on their behalf. The life-saving motif still prevailed on the club emblems and stationery, and there was a liturgical a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. One day, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crew brought in many boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty, bruised, and sick, and some had black or yellow skin. The beautiful new club was terribly messed up, and so the pro property committee immediately had a shower house built on the outside where the shipwrecked victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. 
At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. So members insisted on keeping life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that, after all, they were still called a life-saving station. However, those members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own station down the coast somewhere else. Those few members did exactly that, but as years went by, that new station gradually faced the same problems the other one had experienced. It too became a club, and its life-saving work became less and less of a priority. Those few members who remained dedicated to life-saving began another station. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coastline today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people drowned. I, I ask you, is that Emmanuel Baptist Church? Are we a country club? Where it's all about me and mine? Are we a life-saving station? Is that why you hired me? You didn't hire me, you called me. I work for the Lord, I don't work for you. I answer to him, I don't really answer to you. But a lot of people think, well, that's for the hired people. That's for the pastors. That's, it's not for, is that what we've done? Have we offered training after training after training, but to no avail, we, we're just not a life-saving station? Are we members of a country club or are we members of a life-saving station? Shipwrecks still happen in our community every single day. Lives are at stake. Hell is a reality. And unless we, as a church, as individuals, hear the call of Christ to join him in his life-saving mission, as authentic disciples, we will never, ever see this church fulfill the potential that Christ has for her. It's not about having the best kind of music or the best kind of preaching. Too late for that. It's not about having plush environment for people to come and sit and to soak and to sour in their seats and demand their way because we're a social club. And if we don't give them what they want, they will go to another social club that will appeal and will cater to their needs in order to entertain and to keep them. And the problem with that is, once you do that to keep them, you have to continue to do that or you won't keep them. We are a life-saving station. And as I read earlier in this passage... I think it's interesting. Ezekiel 33. Say to them, these are the words of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why sent Jesus? And he says in the New Testament, for we know that you, Lord, are not slow to fulfill your promise, as some count slowness, but you are patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. I'm convinced there are people in our community, people in your world, in your life, where you work, where you recreate, where you socialize, and where you shop, who are waiting for an interaction from you. And you may be their last, if not their only hope. We're not just saved for ourselves. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's true. He died for you and he has saved most of us in this room. But then it stops being about us. It it becomes about the great commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself. And I wonder where our love has gone for the lost in our community. Genuine discipleship envelops a lot of things. A personal relationship with Christ, commitment to the body of Christ and public declaration of your faith through baptism and connecting to a fellowship and to a body. And and we're going to hear about a lot of things on Sunday night. The primary task of a disciple after he or she is saved is to not just become a disciple, but to invest their lives, our lives, in building others into discipleship. And it begins through faith in Christ. But it doesn't end there. Because God hasn't called us to baptize a lot of people. He's called us to make disciples. Just to get them to say a simple prayer and to dunk them in the baptistry and say, well, our job is done, is not our job fulfilled. It's a job that's begun. Because after the prayer comes discipleship. We must not let spiritual infants who place their faith and trust in Christ, who have been born anew and born by the Spirit of God, spiritual babies, just die on their own, unattended. Who of us would birth a child and then take them home, put them in a crib and say, feed yourself. Hope you make it on your own. Hope you survive. Good luck. And you walk out. Would you do that? I don't think you would. Why? It's not responsible. See, we need to be responsible stewards. Not just lead people to faith. Walk side by side with them to help them grow to mature as disciples of Christ. So, I ask you, will you join Jesus in this missionary effort? You're already a disciple? Will you join the crusade? Will you share in the call? Will you welcome the change and commit to the cost? Think about these four things for a minute. Join the crusade. It's not my crusade. It's not Emmanuel's crusade. It's Christ's crusade. It's why he came. And we're on a crusade now as his disciples. And we each in here share in the call. Every one of us have a responsibility to share in that call. And we must welcome the change that Christ wants to bring into our lives to not just be those that soak, but those who share. Because it's not just about us becoming fully devoted Christ followers, but us investing our lives in building others through faith in Jesus. He can and he will make you a a discipler. 
if you'll welcome the change. But there's a cost. There's a commitment. It'll cost you everything. Not just something, but everything. Well, you're already a disciple, but how about if you're not a disciple? And maybe there's some of us here today who are not yet disciples. Christ is calling. What you hear and what you sense and what you feel in your heart is him calling you. Come on. Receive Christ. Receive my call. Become a fully devoted Christ follower. Recognize there's a cost in following me. And when you come to faith in Christ, it will cost you everything. Repent completely as the disciples. Turn your back on your old way of life and turn to Christ and let him bring new life into your life. And then live out that repentance by a reflected life of complete and total obedience and change. So as we close, where are you today in the decision that God has for your life? What's the call for you to authentic discipleship? Become a Christ follower? Maybe you've already made that decision, but uh, will you join him in being disciple of others who choose and desire to follow Christ, who will answer the call? Let's pray.